a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Welcome. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360, and you've tuned in to a Deeper Look podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is the final episode in our series this year where we've looked at humanitarian crises and emergency response. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Ambassador Rick Barton as our guest. Ambassador Barton is one of America's great humanitarians. He brings experience from the local, from the national, and from the international level. And he is the ideal person to help us wrap up this season's deeper look at humanitarian crises and emergency response. Thank you, Patrick. It's really a pleasure to be here. Rick is currently the co-director of the Scholars in the Nation Service Initiative at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School, where he's been teaching since 2001, is yes. that right? Yes. And he's also the author of a new book called Peace Works, and I'm going to be asking him about his, his book in a minute because it's so relevant to our topic. Rick has tremendous experience working on peace building, on conflict resolution, and on humanitarian response. He is the founding director of the Office of Transition Initiatives, OTI, at USAID, which was really the U.S. government's first institutionalized effort to addressing humanitarian crises with a longer-term perspective and looking at that crisis to development continuum. Mm -hmm. And OTI, under Rick's leadership, uh, made a name for itself as an agile, effective response mechanism. And it continues to this day to bear your stamp and to carry that reputation as a can-do organization. You then went to the UN High Commission for Refugees, where you were the deputy commissioner, so a very senior position on the international stage dealing with humanitarian affairs. You were appointed as the ambassador to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations during the Obama administration. And then more recently, you were the Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations, so building a new bureau at the Department of State that was focused on humanitarian crises and emergency response and how the American government's responses could be more effective. So we really couldn't have a better person to help us um, sum up what is the state of the world with respect to humanitarian crises and emergency response. We started this year, our first episode was with Jana Mason, who comes from UNHCR. And she gave us a big picture about where things stand in the world, how over the last five years we've seen humanitarian crises become more protracted, of longer duration, that there are more people who are displaced than ever before in, in human history, even more than at the end of World War II, which was the previous reference point people were using. And she, so she, she painted the picture of the kind of challenges we face, and then she talked about 
some of the responses. Now we're a year further on. How do you see the state of the world with respect to humanitarian crisis and emergency response? Well, first off, thanks for having me here, Patrick. It's great to meet you and to be on this podcast, so I really appreciate that. I asked the question, actually, in one of the first chapters of my book, Is the World Going to Hell? And because there is this feeling that wherever you look, something awful is happening, and it seems to be closing in on us, and it seems to be on a scale that we've never seen before. So there's quite a bit of pessimism, but my conclusion is that actually we're not as badly off as we were in the last century where 100 million people were killed by war. Um, we are, we're not even close to that because we haven't had these two great world wars uh, and hopefully we will not as long as the U.S. and China get along and climate change doesn't overwhelm us and somebody doesn't have an accidental moment with a nuclear weapon. Right. So the threats are real and they're there. But the crises seem more intense and are more intense because we have many, many more people. And the climate effects are bringing us back to great natural disasters. We're also seeing compounded disasters. So they're not just natural disasters like an earthquake in Haiti followed by a hurricane not too much after mm -hmm. it. But we also see the complete and total collapse of its government at the same time, partially because of the natural disaster, but also because there have been deterioration for Just institutional so weaknesses. Yeah, there. just huge institutional weaknesses. And so we're going to pay the price for a lot, of, for having cut corners on governance for the last several decades. We're paying the price for many more people being around, uh, increased urbanization, and then being reckless about climate. So all of those things suggest that we could have Again, we will continue to have larger than ever natural disasters. What happened from the early 1990s until a few years ago, the movement was into so-called complex emergencies, which were essentially conflict-driven or, or, or political deterioration. Up until that time, everything had been natural disasters. So we went from 90% natural disasters to 90% complex emergencies. I suspect we're going to go back to 50-50 in the next few years, but it doesn't mean that there will be reduced suffering. Uh, there could be increased suffering. Uh, right. Um, because it, although it may be more balanced between natural disasters versus complex crises or, or man-made disasters, as you say, the intensity and uh, the scale may be larger. Now, you pointed out three factors as drivers. One was population growth, the second was climate change, mm -hmm. and the third is urbanization. I'm actually happy to hear you list those three because I agree with you and I often point to those as underlying drivers of social change in the world and I add one, technology. Mm -hmm. How do you see technology fitting into both the creation of complex emergencies and also the response. And, and, and I don't think we should leave out governance because when you do have good governance, on the other hand, 
these items that we mentioned are making it more and more difficult to be a skilled leader and whatnot. Uh, technology, I'm a congenital optimist, so I constantly look for hope because otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> um, and I do think that that's part of our job. We were obviously privileged and we have an opportunity to give people a sense that things could get better. Technology for me is, we're still kind of figuring it out, in particular the communications technologies. But I, th I think it has phenomenal potential to be almost a complete good. Mm -hmm. But being early generation users of these things, we're seeing abuses and misuses and the perversion of what could be a positive. It reminds me a little bit of the early days of, of television. That basically most of the people who went into television were radio people. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know anything about the visual side of it. But they'd go on and they'd drop their voices an octave, and and they they think that they would they were using the medium, but in fact they had no idea of the potential of the medium. So obviously the internet and and cell phones, the, the ability for anybody anywhere to communicate with anybody anywhere, in a moment for almost no cost is a phenomenal breakthrough which right now can be used by the Taliban as effectively as it can be used by the Afghan government. And I think clearly we're going to find more positive and constructive uses. Yeah. I think it will come down on the technology side. There will be so much more information available than mm -hmm. ever before mm -hmm. that on one hand it can really facilitate planning and response because you'll have this level of information that was never available before. Um, on the other hand, it could also be used for more nefarious purposes to impede response, sure. for example. Sure. And one of the things I talk about in the book, and not at great length because it's really not my subject, but that we're entering a period of mutually assured destruction. That phrase used to be saved for the people in the nuclear weapons right. field. But now if you look at most of the threats, almost anybody can individualize them. So a teenager in North Korea can probably knock out the computer system in a hospital in downtown Washington. Right. If people start doing that, anybody can reciprocate. And so you could end up with a series of nasty reciprocations. So again, at a time when we're sort of talking about the United States returning to a fortress mentality, the arguments for why we are actually more dependent on others are probably more compelling than ever. But it's going to have to be at a more sophisticated level. You identify governance as one of the underlying factors driving complex emergencies. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Clearly, if you don't have anybody in charge of a place or somebody is so self-centered in charge of a place that they're not able to reach out to the community quickly, the, the complexity of the problem just compounds itself. And we've seen that in places where there was no governance that an earthquake can be absolutely devastating for years and years and years, or in a place that actually has real governance problems like Pakistan. When they, when they faced it, they very quickly realized they had one institution that was working fairly well, the, the military, for this kind of crisis. Was that the floods? This, that is, the, this is the earthquake in the north. Oh, the earthquake in, in north north. Um, 2005. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And, and, but they also moved to cash, which was, so they gave people cash fairly quickly, and that gave local people the opportunity to 
to find their solution elsewhere in the country if necessary, rather than being stuck there, being held almost in camps and whatnot. So if you have some form of governance, you're likely to reach uh, a solution more quickly. Uh, Amartya Sen would talk about how countries uh, that, that, have, that have any form of democracy are not likely to ever have, suffer famine because it would be so devastating to the, the, to the popularly elected government. So they have to respond and they have to provide information. Well, that's, those are the basic things that the government's so, can do. So you're talking about accountability. And then in the context of complex crises, you're talking specifically at the community level. Mm-hmm and the ability of community members to organize and to in some way be represented in a manner that is legitimate. And to receive that catalytic assistance from if there is a national government or the international mm-hmm. community so it's not, it's not precluded because they are so disadvantaged. Right, they're not on their own. Right. But you are saying that that level of organization is one of the essential building blocks. I, I absolutely so I want to ask you about your book. Your book is called Peace Works, America's Unifying Role in a Turbulent World. So I think we can all agree that we live in a turbulent <laughs> world. But I'd like to get your perspective on America's unifying role because sure, I think sure. few people would agree that America is playing a unifying role. Right. Yeah, it is probably my favorite word in the whole title, other than peace, which for whatever reason gets a bad rap. (laughs) And I've tried, I've tested it on audiences. I I say, look, if I give you a choice between the word peace and the word war, how many people here prefer the word war? I've yet to have anybody raise their hand. But there's still something about it. uh, There's an image problem around the word peace. But unifying is the aspirational word in this title. And peace is plenty aspirational as well, for that matter. But my argument is that the United States has an advantaged position. It doesn't mean we're better, that that it's God-given, but we have arrived at an advantaged position. And, And most of the conversations on Earth, if we want to bring something to them, we are invited to that conversation, which nobody else can claim. And we also have convening power that few others have. Absolutely. And and then we actually have resources, and in both in terms of talent and financial resources and others, that we could actually direct constructively if we knew what to do. So the book really makes the argument for we've done it, so we can do it. There are lots of opportunities for imagination, American ingenuity especially combined with native ingenuity, so that if we're not dependent on being the smartest guy in the room and always having the answer, but being more catalytic, then the United States can really, can probably make the world more peaceful. And it's not a given. We're going to have to work hard at it. And we haven't been very skillful at it. So if you look at America's interventions, it's been a real mixed record. And when, when you say that, you're talking about our interventions since World War II or, or more recently? 
Well, the, the book really focuses on those that I know personally, so it really goes back to about 1994. Mm -hmm. um, so it really picks up on Bosnia, Haiti, Rwanda as the early stories, mm -hmm. but then you have to go through Afghanistan and Iraq and end up in Syria and other current well, places now it's like Nigeria. The Sahel, like Nigeria. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of places where the United States has tried to do things, but we've stumbled an awful lot. and. There are many, many arguments. One of the core arguments that I hold on to is that if the American public is not engaged, it's it's difficult for all the smartest people in Washington and in our embassies and whatnot to always do the right things. It just doesn't happen. And in the last 20 conflicts that the United States have been involved in, we haven't really had congressional action, which is sort of the preliminary step for the U.S. public to get a handle on what's right. going on. There's one really good example, and that is that when President Obama had sort of his, his famous red line speech, where he said the Assad regime has crossed that line. By using chemical weapons by, in Syria. Exactly. When he made that speech, he then said, but I will not act unless the Congress chooses to be part of this which I thought was actually a kind of a breakthrough decision. But it was ridiculed in Washington as uh, that he'd given away some presidential power. Right, that he was being weak right. and indecisive. Exactly. But what ended up happening is that speech, I think, was on a Saturday. On Sunday afternoon, 80-plus Congress people returned in a rush to Washington for a White House briefing on Syria. Now, you could probably guess that many of them had already prepared press releases condemning the White House for going ahead without consulting the Congress, so they had to destroy those. And there they were, actually engaged in a major decision that would affect the American public. Surveys of the American public showed that 15% self-described as following the events in Syria before that speech. 45% mm -hmm. within two weeks were said mm -hmm. they were now engaged. So. That's our system. Your point here is that for America to play a unifying role and to be more effective in its diplomacy, its use of soft power, mm -hmm. that it really requires the engagement of the American people. Absolutely. And that to be um, reflected by congressional authorizations or congressional engagement. So that makes perfect sense. But if we now play that idea forward to today, where we see the U.S. more polarized, we see a society that's more divided, I think, than in, in our lifetimes. How do you see the application of that principle? So there are a couple of quick tests for citizenship. One of them is obviously voting or caring about things. But another one would be paying taxes. So we've gotten into a lot of wars in the last couple of decades, and we've never been told that we had to pay for it. it right. There's never been a tax increase. There's never been any uh, suggestion that there was a responsibility that went with it. That It used to be that people served in the military, and now very few of us have any direct family connections with the U.S. military. If you're really not voting on these things and you're not paying taxes on them, and it's not your children or your cousins who are serving in, in these conflicts, you start to see that we've kind of taken a pass. Now, I think we have to re-engage on each of those, so there's, there, there should be true costs. If somebody 
instead of hiding the $100 billion expense in Afghanistan, we, it needs to be articulated. And it also needs to be articulated as to where that money is going. So in the early days of the Syrian war, for example, we were spending almost all of our money on humanitarian assistance. So after about two years, we'd, we'd spent about $4 billion on mostly humanitarian assistance. I'm not talking about the secret expenditures for whatever mm -hmm. the right. intelligence community was spending. But within a few weeks, when the U.S. military became engaged, we quickly doubled our spending. Right. And people just need to understand that when a U.S. soldier is in Afghanistan, for it's about a million dollars a year as a loaded cost now. And the loaded costs that Stieglitz and, and Linda Bilmes and other people have calculated. So those are economists you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they've calculated for the Iraq war. These are multi-trillion dollar wars because they do figure on the cost of a veteran who has to go through years of rehabilitation, mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be. Those are fair ways for us to understand things, and they're not really beyond the ability of almost any American to understand. If we are invited to the conversation. And one of the arguments that I have against the national security establishment, of which I'm a card-carrying member, is that we kind of suggest that it's the, that, 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 that the smartest people in the world are doing this work for you. And it's like, I'm sorry, this is not that complicated. One of the things I really like about your book is your emphasis on the need for humility mm -hmm. and for the U.S. to play a positive role, that it has to be self-reflective mm -hmm. and that it requires humility. Mm -hmm. I think you said that when you asked focus groups around the country what one word characterized mm -hmm. the U.S., that the most common word was... was ar arrogant. Arrogant. Yeah. And that would work against the kind of strategy that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that really stood out for me in PeaceWorks is the emphasis on local solutions, so listening mm -hmm. to the counterparts mm -hmm. that we have and to the people who are caught up in humanitarian crises and finding the solutions there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, ex exactly. And at the very simplest level, you are arrogant if you see somebody else's problem and you say, no worries, I can solve your problem. How many times have we done that for somebody who loves us dearly uh, and comes to us with a problem and we try and we don't always hit a home run, no matter the wisdom that we offer them. So right from the beginning, that is a complex issue. I know it's troubled you a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm going to be as thoughtful about this, and in particular listening to you and really trying to figure out what's going on with you and your country or your people at this point. Yeah, there's another kind of arrogance that I often see in international development where somebody comes with a idea or a solution to an experienced expert and they say, no, that won't work. We tried that. Tried that. That won't work. <laughs> I call that old fart syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, one thing that just to mention that I had the great opportunity at OTI and at CSO, the State Department, to actually work in two offices or bureaus that when we walked in the room, we were not there because we had a geographic mandate. It's, mm -hmm. it's happening in your area and you have to do it. Or because we had a predetermined product. Because it turns out every place on earth needs help with AIDS or needs help with 
food or food security. Almost everybody has those problems. Our priority was we had to determine what was most important. And so having that license was a wonderful license, and I believe that would also help people in other parts of the development and humanitarian field as well, not to always bring the whatever they have in the warehouse. Right. And you talk in your book about the importance of narrowing down to some specific focuses or, or priorities. How did you do that? Did you have a set methodology for doing that? It really was a methodology, actually. We, we did sort of develop kind of a step methodology that at every step you could either stop on that step or you could keep going. But that was another kind of license that we had, is that we didn't have to be responsible for solving that problem if we thought we couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so it was unusual to be able to send people out in the field for two or three weeks or longer and give them the license to come home and say, it's not the right time. Because otherwise, there's the expectation you have this five-person assessment team, and they have to go out and say, this is what we'll do. And that was Brian Atwood, uh, who was the administrative AID, gave me that license when I, when I came back from Sarajevo, and I was just developing the process that we were going to go through. And at a critical point, he said to me, so do you think you might, you might have gotten shot at while you were running into your hotel? And I said... Yeah, that's why we ran into the hotel. Yeah. And he said, well, what's the likelihood of war returning to Sarajevo? And I said, I think that there's a 10% chance that peace will hold. And he said, I'd like you to be a post-bullet program. Well, guess what? I breathe a gigantic sigh of relief because trying to do this work in the middle of bullets flying is a little bit overly optimistic. Right. And, and maybe that's one of the challenges we faced and continue to face in Afghanistan. Absolutely. The lesson there, though, is that sometimes we need to be willing and empowered to say uh, it's not the right time to do something. Absolutely. And we did that in Haiti in particular. It was really OTI's big breakthrough test pilot. Mm -hmm. and, and this was following the earthquake? This, or is, this, before, was, the this earthquake. was before the earthquake, following the U.S. invasion. Oh, so okay. We had, so we had the soldiers right. there in 1994. But what we did is we came up with a model that said, we will work on what we called local governance, but there was very little local governance. We had expected mayors would be elected and other things, but of course they were not. That was put off. So we had to work with whatever existed there. But we said, we will work with any community and any group in any community if they come up with a plan that is supported by the community. They can show it could be 12 farmers, it could be 27 parents, we didn't really care. Mm -hmm. Any kind of grouping would work. They're willing to make a contribution of their own. They're willing to be totally transparent with the assets that are being put into the project. And if they weren't willing to do that, no, I've, I've got the idea, all these people will listen to me, I'm in charge, we'd say, there are 135 communes in this in this uh, country, and we'll just go to another right, one. Right, you're not so, the right partner for So, so yeah. the ability to just say no really does empower you in a way that almost nothing else does. These are things that I think are useful and helpful rules. Yeah, helpful not just in humanitarian crises, but just in international development work in general. I think so. To not feel the pressure that I've got to come up with a some solution, right. and to have the self confidence either as an organization or as an individual 
to say this isn't the right time for a solution. And I, you know, I can remember in particular going back to Rwanda after the genocide. So I was there immediately after the genocide, and I went in with the attitude, oh, there's some things we can do. And actually, it was a, a Rwandan employee, a Foreign Service National at the embassy, who had lost all his family, who after my conversing with him for 15 minutes, he said, you know, Rick, you have to understand who I've lost. And he went through basically every kind of relative you could have. And he said, I'm just not prepared to even think about this. And I, I, you know, I the thought- The weight of that. Yeah, and, and I thought, my goodness, who was I to imagine that he was gonna be ready to, okay, let's just pick it up yeah. and we're going the next day. So, yeah. but got back there about six or eight months later and there had been some resistance, as you can understand sometimes, by the, the local aid mission. Who's this guy coming in to tell us what to do? But I did have the luxury of the time to just drive around for a few days. And then it turned out that the Jelts who were there, they were the AID f uh, family that I were there. They were, had given it a lot of thought. In particular, she had given it a lot of thought. And we sat down one night and we realized that all of these transitions were going on in, in the post-genocide Rwanda. But there was one dominant idea, and that was that there were many more women and girls in the population than there were men. And so we, th we thought, well, the, this Hutu Tutsi thing has not worked out very well. And if we try to either paper it over or, or over-rely on it, we're probably gonna end up getting stuck again. So why don't we focus on women in in this post-genocide mm -hmm. moment. And then it turned out that w there was a fortuitous occurrence that there was a new ministry that was being run by the only woman in the cabinet, and she had been the fundraiser for the rebel movement, mm -hmm. so she had standing. But of course, they'd given her the weakest bureaucracy with no money and, and, and no people. So we were able to go in there and work with her and really elevate her entire function and then use that as a way to reach women all over Rwanda. So we got an answer, but again, a lot of times it's just plain fortuitous. But if you're open, if you're open to what is available as opposed to what you want to have happen, uh, you can still get to what you want right. to have happen. And then there's also the ability to see where opportunities are. Right. And Rwanda is a good example because you're talking about 1994, the devastation in the aftermath to the genocide there. And today, if you look at Rwanda, 50% of the cabinet is women. So maybe it started with that seed back in 1994. It's an example of where peace really can work. What are some other lessons that you've drawn from your experience that we can end this episode with about <laughs> what doesn't work, and I, you've said arrogance doesn't work. <laughs> you've said imposing solutions doesn't work. So those are a couple things that stand out. What What are some of the lessons? What lessons can you share with us to wrap up this episode? Well, I, I do think that the feeling that it, because you are advantaged that you're necessarily smarter than the people. I, I find, again, getting back to what you mentioned earlier, that it's both, a, it's both a negative lesson and a positive lesson because anywhere you go in the world, there are people there who are really quite capable. Even a place that's been devastated by a genocide, there were still 
many, many, many people who are quite capable, and they will own their problem forever, whereas you will visit their problem. Tourist visas are just not the same as full ownership of whatever you have to go through. So, and furthermore, they have ideas. Now, if you also bring fresh ideas and stimulate their thinking, that's a great role for you. So I really, at the end of the day, it's, I think we've talked about it already, but I would say respect the local initiative, seek out local ingenuity, empowered every way you can and then recognize that yours is a catalytic role it's not I, I only have one child but I can't take that much credit for my child's good days and bad days I, I, I wish I had been more influential <laughs> in sad times but I'm really quite pleased that it's her life and and that's I don't think that, that I care about anything more on earth so that means that if I'm working in somebody else's country, they're probably, I'm, I'm, I'm not even that passionate about it as, as much as I care. So let's really be honest with ourselves and, and we can be helpful and we need to be engaged because America does have this advantage role. But at the end of the day, these local people really are the ones that we want to elevate in every way we can. That is a great way to end this year's deeper look into humanitarian crises and emergency response. I hope our listeners will take that perspective to heart. Ambassador Barton, I want to thank you very, very much for coming in, sharing your perspective with me and with our listeners, and helping us finish the year on such a strong note. Well, thanks, Patrick, and I I look forward to your next year as well. I'm sure it'll be equally great. So next year, (laughs) we're going to be taking a deeper look into the darker side of development. And by that, what I'm talking about is looking at the paradoxes, the dilemmas, the unintended consequences, the efforts to do good that actually result in harm or that misfire in one way or another. And uh, maybe, uh, Ambassador Barton, we could get you back on <laughs> to, <laughs> to share Thanks. some perspective on that. I hope listeners will tune in next year for our theme that looks at the darker side of development. We're going to start out with Sarah Case, who is a specialist on corruption, has amazing experience with looking at the impact of corruption on societies and in particular on development efforts. As we end this episode, I want to thank all of the guests that joined me across the year with their wisdom, their knowledge and experience. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and joining us And I want to thank our production team. So Catherine Wise, who is the producer of Deeper Look Podcast. Leanne Gray, who is our photographer. And Alexia Lunas, who's the head of communications at FHI 360. Thank you very much for helping us take a deeper look at issues that matter.